So thanks very much. It's really a great pleasure to be here. So um, first, I think you're probably quite happy. You can finally sit down and you can take off the earphones. So we can actually speak to each other in real life. So I'm going to talk to you today about what's happening with technology the next sort of five to seven years and how that impacts us in many good ways and many not so good ways. But the positive message is, of course, my book, you know, this has been around now for two years. It's out in 12 languages. And since I wrote the book, I've come to a conclusion that I should have changed the title. So I'm, I'm working on a new edition, Technology and Humanity, right? which I'll, I will tell you why that is in a second, but so you understand the logic here. So as a futurist, I do a bunch of different things. So I don't predict the future. Uh, I always say that I just observe the future. You know? Basically, I work on a way of saying, okay, we can put the future together and understand where it's going and what the next steps will be. And this is really my job. Right? So it's not Nostradamus, it's just observation. I think many of you in this room, if you took off four weeks and you, you would observe what's happening, you could come up with good ideas for the next five years, not 50 years. Right? So it's not really this. I think also the really t tough part about this is that the future is no longer about tomorrow. The future is here. I think it was uh, a famous science fiction author, William Gibson, once said, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. And that's so true. You know, 10 years ago, I used to sit down and say, what if the cloud works? You know, I used to be in the music business. Uh, and so 1999, we started something like Spotify, lost a lot of money. Uh, we think about music will go into the cloud. It was just too early. And we were thinking, of what if the cloud actually works? And now there's Spotify and Netflix and dozens of others. Right? So this is really important that we have a future mindset. And the future mindset is tough, you know, because we have to take care of today, you know, operations, practical things, and then we have to think about tomorrow. Just give you one example. The end of oil. You know the end of oil is a certainty. Not 50 years not 30 years, but probably 15 or 20 years, we will not need oil like we do today because, uh, because renewable energy is becoming possible and making money. The price for renewable energy in India, for example, is already lower than the price for the coal plants. So if you can think of it that way, you know, it's the mindset that we have to think about what's the next step in the future and where things are going. And I always like to use one saying in particular is that we have to assume less and discover more. Because this is also very true. The future is not an extension of the present. In other words, what we have learned until today is great, but tomorrow is so dramatically different. Just look at the, all the factors, cloud computing, quantum computing, the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, robotics. How can we expect that in 10 years it will be anything like today? It won't. I mean, if you're Mercedes-Benz or Audi or BMW, the future of the car is not to have a car. The future of the car is to have mobility. Of course, they know that by now. Right? And this is a huge shift. The future of the music business is not to sell music. It's to sell your brand. The music on Spotify, I know if you use Spotify, one of my favorite examples, 21 million songs for 10 euros. How much did we pay for a CD 10 years ago? Never mind iTunes, I won't even touch on that, right? A dollar a song. <laughs> like, okay, so the CD, 25 euros, and now 21 million songs, 10 euros. So the, basically music is free. So how can we expect the future to be like today? We really have to get a future mind around this and, and have less assumptions about where things are going because in 10 years it'll be dramatically different in many good ways and other not so good ways. I want to start with this. These days, a lot of people are afraid of the future. All you have to do is watch television to be afraid of the future. First, we have the Brexit, Erdogan, Trump, you know, all the other things that are worrying us. And then we have the constant message that machines are coming, and first they will take our job, and then they will kill us. I mean, you heard the story. Black Mirror, you know, uh, all transcendence, Ex Machina, Hollywood. I mean, the best thing you can do about the future is not to watch any of that. I mean, I watch it anyway, it's entertaining, right? But the future is better than we think. The future is not bad. 
regardless of all these changes, you know, we have amazing things, and I want to show you a couple examples to tell you why I think the future is not as bad as it looks. So I'll start with this, you know, very simple statistics. I'll give you a couple of those. The decline of poverty. Most people haven't noticed, you know. We think there's more poverty, but it's actually a lot less than there used to be. The life expectancy. Now, basically, the kids of our kids will get to live 100 years. 100 years on average. And we are gaining in this room in Western countries about one-third of a year every year we live. Just because of medical advances and other things. I mean, life extension, right? So that's a fact that that also has an, another sort of... You know, problem of the, on the other end, security and those kind of things. Right? Global child mortality is decreasing. Most people are not aware of this. Uh, this has been a huge... You know, solar panels are essentially free. But, you know, of course, solar panels don't solve our, our energy problem, right? The batteries do, the next one. The cost of battery declining. Basically, in a couple of years, you can drive your electric car 2,000 kilometers. Right? You, know, you charge it once a month. Think about if your car costs 10,000 euros, it goes a whole month. Why would you buy any other car? I mean, why would you buy a car at all? You can just share one, right? I mean, the innovation in that term is just mind-boggling. And all the stats go on. Industrial robots, Baxter and others, are now becoming cheaper than ever before. I mean, this you can't even express in numbers. And the most important one is human DNA analytics used to be about 100 million <laughs> to get your DNA checked. Now it's, uh, I think latest I checked again, it's about $850. Um, people are estimating roughly $5 in the very near future. That's because of quantum computing and all, all the other facts around this. Right? So we're looking at a world where this, if we can all get our genome checked, we can find out what kind of gene causes what disease. We can actually predict we can go from sick care to health care. You know, right now what we're doing is we're saying, basically, when you get sick, that's when we check. Well, it's too late then. So doing this will change healthcare completely, upside down. This is another great example of how we're going to exponential transformation on these topics. But, you know, of course, it's important to remember one thing, is that as we all are connecting, I live in Switzerland, so I use the Swiss cows, you know. In Switzerland, the cows are actually connecting. So they're using these radio frequency chips so the cow can step up and milk itself. Right? The machine knows what cow is you know, set up in a certain way, and the cow can just step up and get itself milked. It's only 100,000 euros for these kind of things, but you know, it's, it's still quite uh, an entertaining part. Right? So basically what we see here is that this is very positive for all of us, but the more we connect, the more we have to protect. It's, this is a huge benefit, the Internet of Things and other things. But think about this for a second. When all the data about you, your DNA, your money, your food, your smart home, when that becomes available, that's amazing. It's called the global brain, basically. So you can give your doctor information about your status. But who's going to guarantee the information? Who will protect our privacy? Sometimes I say jokingly, offline is the new luxury. In fact, I have two clients in Switzerland that are running hotels that are guaranteed that you cannot go on the Internet. Okay? And they charge a lot of money for that. So there's a whole wing of the hotel that's blocked from the you know, 4G or 5G or 50G, whatever it's going to be. Right? And it's expensive. But you know, this is important. When we do this, and we will do this, and there's no way around it, we have to figure out who's accountable, reliable, who do we trust, we can't just say, well, you know, my job is to connect and never mind anything else. That will not work here. Because if your job is to connect, then your, your job is to make the machine intelligent, yeah, to change the way we work. Right? I mean, that's a huge responsibility. So uh, that's kind of an interesting point to where we basically are seeing this is happening pretty much across uh, all of the different disciplines of, the, of industry. And this is the most important curve you see many times before, the exponential curve, you know, Moore's Law, Metcalfe's Law. But here's the important point, right? We're at the takeoff point. You haven't noticed, of course, the last speeches here. It's clear everywhere. We're at the point where everything is taken off. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah, many things are not working perfectly, like language translation. 
speech recognition, but pretty close. You can't go in a self-driving car and sit in the back and just eat a hamburger you know, quite yet. Maybe Waymo will offer that, right? But we have level three or four assisted driving. Right? We're at the takeoff point. I mean, just imagine this curve, if you go 30x up the scale from here, that's one billion. 30x up the scale. So in 2040, the point of so-called singularity, when technology and humanity are coming together, the world can be dramatically different. I mean, exponentially different. Right? So the first key word here is exponential, which means we're moving into a world that is no longer linear. And the problem with that is, of course, as we are used to linear thinking, what's happening here is that we have technologies coming in that are also combining, what I call combinatorial. So all of the ideas of technology, they're not isolated. You know, Things don't exist just because we have robots, you know. But if you take robots and big data and the cloud and AI together, boom, right? Like, for example, in this scene, you see the convergence of technology and biology, infotech and biotech. That's coming right now. If you're a pharma company, you're going to look at this and say, well, hold on a minute. Does that mean people will not take pills for cholesterol problems in 10 years? The answer is yes. I mean, apart from the fact that they're mostly useless anyway. But can we use technology to prevent diseases? Absolutely. Can we cure cancer? Not quite. But clearly, I mean, think about this. Smart devices, remote diagnostics. 85% of all doctor's visits could be done remotely because they involve standard things. Doctors wouldn't agree on that, of course. <laughs> but if you look in this direction, it's quite clear what's happening. This convergence is humongous. And it fills me with hope to think about where this can take us, yeah? what I call the game changes. And I will not go through all of those because that's your daily business, right? Cloud computing, artificial intelligence, 3D printing. It boggles the mind. Every day you read something that says, okay, uh, you know, Kevin Kelly made a joke about this the other day saying, you take the next, uh, next 10,000 companies and just put AI on top. Right? And so I do X plus AI, and boom, you get your funding. Right? Same story, the mega shifts, you know, all the things. And I think the most important three ones here are the stuff I've talked about for the last roughly 10 years. But it's finally here is the fact that data is the driver behind all of those business models. The most powerful companies in the world are data companies. They're not oil companies, banks, or the military. Data is the new oil. AI is the new electricity. And the Internet of Things is the new nervous system. So that is alone, I think McKinsey says, uh, roughly $100 trillion of new revenue streams. <laughs> well, that's why people are so excited. But imagine if this works. I mean, the oil companies were prohibited from doing certain things, right? They were supervised. But still, we have 450 ppm in the environment, and we have to deal with global warming. What happens here? If data is the new oil, do we need supervision? Does anybody want supervision? Apart from Microsoft, maybe? AI, the new electricity, that's something that people use in China a lot, this kind of saying. Right? The Internet of Things. Very powerful stuff changing. Now we have to ask a question. If this all happens, what about the benefits? Are they going to be distributed? If this data movement is the new tomorrow, right? this is kind of a joke on the, on the communist, you know. But basically, data is the new power, right? The top four companies in the world of data, search, and social media have more money than the GDP of France. They could buy France. They're probably not thinking about that, but it's just an idea, you know. So... We're looking at roughly here this, this huge shift towards data being the driver of everything. And of course, just now we're witnessing all the, you know, where this is going. Uh, Mark Andreessen said years ago, 2011, software is eating the world, right? It's so true, especially for SAP. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's software. But now artificial intelligence is eating software. Of course, AI is, is software, right? So it's eating itself, you could say. But basically, all software is becoming intelligent, all software. Now, this is not intelligent like we are intelligent, because humans are quite a different cup of tea, I'll show you. But intelligent in the sense of learning, 
you know, if a software can learn, does it become intelligent like you? Probably not. But is it better than being programmed? Probably yes. I mean, this is a huge shift that we're seeing with machine learning and, and neural networks and deep learning, all the things you read about every single day. Let me show you some examples. Human Longevity Inc., or HLI, is the genomics-based health intelligence company empowering proactive healthcare and enabling a life better lived. HLI combines the largest database of genomic and phenotypic data with machine learning to drive discoveries to make healthcare more personal, predictive, and preventative. You got the keywords, right? Data, genomics, improving how things work. You've heard that before, too. This is a company whose goal it is to end dying. As it's a modest goal, of course, but you know they can just extend this a little bit. That's that's a huge market that everybody will want to Health have. Health Nucleus, of. HLI's clinical research center, integrates whole genome sequencing analysis, advanced digital imaging, and innovative machine learning. Vertical farming. We're talking about growing with aeroponics, sort of misting the roots with the nutrients. This is a way of growing that uses 95% less water, zero pesticides, and just a fraction of the fertilizer. And this is a new way of farming where we're taking biology, we're taking engineering. And data science? There you heard the keyword again. We're taking biology and data science. Right? And boom, this is the uh, vertical farming facility. I think it's actually in Japan, underground. Right? Now there's people saying roughly one vertical farm in a high-rise in a city can feed 100,000 people. Right now it's too expensive, clearly. Robots and AI, and, you know, it takes a lot of money to make this work. <laughs> Very expensive salad. But yeah, can you see where this is going? You have a problem with food? Yeah, we can fix it this way. And we, it can be completely organic too. We could do anything you want in there. Creating a whole new way of growing that can truly transformative. Aero Farms is 130 times more productive per square foot than the traditional field farm. And this is really redefining agriculture. Would you eat a hamburger or a chicken nugget made of meat grown in a laboratory? Joshua Tetrick, co-founder and CEO of Just, is betting that you will. In tomorrow's world, you can eat more meat, hopefully safer meat, even better tasting meat, without eating the animal. Lab-grown clean meat onto the Lab-grown clean meat, data science, and biology. Bill Gates and Richard Branson have invested in this. I tasted this the other day, about three months ago called lab-grown meat, or it was uh, called Memphis meat. Well, I don't know why it was Memphis, but that's what they call it. Right? It's $2,000 a pound for this meat. Right? But it's actual, you know, it's real meat. It's from the cells. It's not actually fake, right? And it tasted great. Bill Gates is saying roughly in five years it'll be the same price than regular meat, and in 10 years it'll be 120th of the price of regular meat. Can we feed everybody? Would you eat this? Yeah, but it's real meat. It's not a cow, but it's real meat. They, you know, that sometimes they say it's like animals without the cruelty. Get by the end of the year at a retail price within 30% of that of traditional meat. So that's just three examples of how what's already happening in terms of transformation. You know, science fiction is becoming science fact. Now in my book, I uh, bring up the concept of the mega shifts, and these are ten different things. You know, people talk to me about digital transformation. I often have a good laugh because this is just one thing that's happening. It's not just digitization. It's robotization, automation, platform companies. You can download this whole thing for free, by the way, if you want a chapter from the book. It's megashifts.digital. It's a free download, easy to remember, in 10 different languages. But this is really all interactive. So our job is to figure out what makes sense for us in our business. It takes quite a bit of doing in terms of transformation because <laughs> it's all overlapping and happening at the same time. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of highlights on this. But basically what's happening here is that the mega shifts are the key to that future. The key to how we figure out how we can be productive and, and change the world using these kind of technological approaches. So one a quick example on that as well. Of course I remember the code. It's 4452? Four, four, Four. This guy looks amazing. I look amazing. I should take a selfie. Did I forget to lock the front door? Um, hey Google? Hi, what can I do for you? This is the Google commercial that ran on the, uh, in the Oscars. Okay. It's ingenious for many ways. 
But you have to wonder about one thing. You know, what if I use Google for everything? All of us use maybe Gmail or Google Maps, and you know, it's a, we kind of forget how to do things. But if we do this with everything, Google, I need to have a date. That's Tinder, right? Google, I need to get married. This is India, right? This is actually, if you go to betterhalf.ai in India, you see how that works with an AI, right? Finding a partner with AI. I sometimes wonder whether we should put this convenience over consciousness, whether we're not going to start forgetting who we are. Because everything is done by somebody else. We outsource our thinking. So I live in Switzerland. Next time the, the, uh, uh, the election forms come in, you know, we have to take off every three months. We're electing on something or the other. Right? I just feed it into the Google box. <laughs> it tells me what to do. It tells me what to think. So it could be heaven or it could be hell. You know, it's kind of like either or. I'm not entirely sure which way it goes. But let's talk about humans and machines. This is a very important topic. Let's think about this from the top down. Do you think that we are this? Right? We are just a machine. This is not news. You know, Descartes had similar views. And now we hear this a lot in Silicon Valley. Ultimately, you know, organisms, us, are algorithms. In Europe, we don't agree on this because we're humanists. Right? We're like, no, 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 that can't be true. But in many ways, people are saying, you know what? We're just a fancy machine. I don't really, I don't think that's really true. And if it was true, I think it will take us at least 50 years to figure out how this machine really works. But regardless, you know, this brings up a big debate about this idea of saying, well, can we use technology to become superhuman? Let me ask you a simple question. Now, who does not want to be superhuman? We think about your job. I mean, the capability of wearing a virtual reality helmet as a doctor or a lawyer or a policeman, all of a sudden you can be a hundred times as fast in what you do. Like Tom Cruise in Minority Report, who would not want that? On the other hand, when we have it, maybe it will be boring without it. So you come home in the evening to your family after a day of work in the virtual universe and, and it's just really boring. It's like a, a kid, you know, sometimes I see families on the airplane where a three- or four-year-old kid is using an iPad for five hours, right? doing all kinds of things on the, on the iPad. I can imagine that kid goes to the beach and says, oh, man, this is so boring. Where's my iPad? Right? It's probably not such a good idea to want to be superhuman, you know, to sort of think about that as a, as a way of becoming more than we were before. So I think something we have to remember in all of these debates about artificial intelligence is too much of a good thing is a very bad thing. That is true for a lot of things, especially for technology. So this could be a good thing, right? AI can help me find my way or translate simple languages, things like that. But let's remember that you know, uh, uh, happiness is not a download. Relationships aren't code even though we do a lot of coding. you know, That's not the nature of a relationship. And trust isn't digital. And trust is something that we develop between humans. And technology can make or break this, but clearly this is a very big debate about how far we should go with this. And who decides? And if we don't go that far, maybe the other guys will go that far. And then we can't compete. It's like China and the genomic research thing, right? Maybe we just can't compete. But one thing is for certain, machines are learning the left part of our brain now. This is very old-fashioned thinking, of course, left and right. <laughs> Logic, knowledge, understanding, context, simple things, routines, machines can learn. You would see in the next year, 10 years, that machines will learn anything that does not involve human judgment. Bookkeeping, driving, flying, doing legal discovery, we can see the beginning of that already happening. As long as it does not require my creative input or my judgment or my contextual understanding or compassion, which a lot of work does. So that's clearly happening. I mean, this is a huge shift for us is to give some of that work to the machines. Because then we have to ask, you know, is it actually happening? Is it doing the right thing? Because this is the difference between humans and machines. 
Researchers have shown that humans have uh, at least eight or nine different kinds of intelligences. So that goes for emotional intelligence. Allegedly, women have a much higher rate of emotional intelligence. And social intelligence, understanding context. Kinesthetic, understanding the body. You may have seen the movie Her, right? Great science fiction movie, where the main problem is that the computer doesn't have a body. So the computer can be in love with 3,450 other men. No problem. No body. Multiply. But this is really what we are. Do you really think a machine can estimate this? I would say, yeah, maybe 50 years, maybe. Maybe 100 years. The machine can understand it, but the machine doesn't exist. You know, I think they, there was a great uh, dialogue on, on this the other day. I saw uh, in a scientific journal where somebody said the ability to be human has to do with the ability to suffer. We can feel things. Machines don't do that. And yet, machines will become so powerful, as my colleague Ray Kurzweil says, in 2050, one machine will have the calculating capability of all human brains. Roughly 10 billion by then. The processing capability. Right? Not, not this, hopefully. Right? So this is a very, very big thing to think about. You know, we, we have to think about how far we want to go with this and where exactly that will take us. So as we're looking in this direction, clearly that's going to be a major challenge to figure out where do we stop using this, where it's too much, where there may be situations where we have to change this. Because this is a major problem with this. The stuff that we do very easily... Machines have a very hard time following. Marvin Minsky, the founder of artificial intelligence, always said, whatever is very easy for a computer, it's very hard for a human, and vice versa. And this is also the key to the future. Let the computers do the stuff that's easy for them, which is calculating, you know, binary, zeros and ones, if this, then that. And maybe the quantum computer will have both zeros and ones in the future. <laughs> Why not? But let's not have them decide what we should decide. Who do we want to be? What is right or wrong? What are the values that we find important? AI does not care about values. It's a machine. It shouldn't, in my view, care about that. We need to figure out how we can bring the two together, how we combine the two. Because one thing that's really happening, for example, that you can already see, like in medical purposes for AI, is that sometimes the, doc the doctor is straight on in like 0.4 seconds on the right decision, and the computer makes a completely wrong decision based on wrong data and the wrong manuals and the wrong interface and, you know, whatever else can be wrong with that, right? But ideally, of course, combining the two would be the thing that we want. So that's something we have to learn. I don't think we should live in a world where we have lots of black box artificial intelligence making decisions that we can't question. Imagine for a second, IBM Watson, for example, reads 1.2 million books a minute, allegedly. Always have to say allegedly with those things. Right? It can read lots of stuff. I, w I used to be a student of philosophy. There's not 1.2 million books on philosophy. But if I stuffed all the books into the machine, would the machine be a philosopher? I think all of us would safely say that's probably not true. Even though it could quote any page at any time, it could debate with you about the pages it has read, right? like many AI do. I mean, it could do all these kind of things, but it still does not know because basically data and information is not knowledge. It's a little bit of knowledge. It's not understanding. It's not wisdom. It's not purpose. Give me an example. If you meet your kids for dinner and you have a 13-year-old son, Okay, the son may tell you about what happened today, like I got following grades, I missed the bus, and so on. But you realize when you look at him, because he has such a stupid grin on his face, right, maybe this is the first time in his life where he's fallen in love. Right? And you understand it. You just do. The machine? No. No data? No, if this, then that. Right? This is like ephemeral information, what's called tacit knowledge I, that I can read. But the machine, yeah, okay? If he says, I have fallen in love, right, then the machine can say, you know, you should buy X, Y, Z, you know, as a, as a consequence, right? But that's what we are. It's very important to keep that difference. I think we should let machines have the knowledge. 
Should we let them have understanding or wisdom? I doubt it. You see in the landscape of AI, Max Techmark shows this, that AI is starting to go into lots and lots of places you know, where the rising tide has brought cloud computing, intelligent assistance, Jeopardy, poker, Go. Right? But at a certain point, it stops the tide. Right? Why does it stop? Because it requires human ingenuity of some sort on the top level right? to write a book. Uh, Nick Cave had a great quote the other day, a musician, who said, an AI, a computer, can write good music, which I think is true. And then he said, an AI cannot write great music because it doesn't have the nerve. It doesn't have the guts to write great music because it doesn't exist. So that's really the question of what we want, is how far do we want to go? Should there be a limit? Should it be for the factual things we use this, for the other ones we don't? It's not that easy, obviously. So this is a very, very big debate about artificial intelligence. I, I'm quite hopeful. I think I see a lot of sense in this sort of quadrant that I have here. Assistant intelligence, that's everywhere. I call this IA, intelligent assistance. That's 98% of what we're talking about in this room. These machines and this software is not thinking like we do. It has a sort of sentience of, on the lowest kind, you know, adding up numbers. And it can automate things, which is great. This has great implications on the job market and things like that, but it's not existential. I mean, this software will not do us evil. Right? Augmented intelligence, same thing. But here on the last part, right? autonomous intelligence, creating machines that can be like us, that's probably not a good idea. But how do we distinguish? So for all in this room, I think, you know, we're working very hard on these intelligent things. <laughs> but should we allow the machine to become sort of autonomous, what's called artificial general intelligence? I think we have to put a stop there. So it's a very big debate that's going on pretty much around the world now on this topic of digital ethics. But let's have a look at work and jobs first. First, there's very good news, in my view. This is really what's happening. The sort of convergence of man and machine. A lot of labor's things that we used to do, now the machine can do it for us. That includes driving. So when I'm in Los Angeles, I rent a Tesla, I try you know, just to experience it, and I can sit back and do my email. I cannot sit in the back of the car and, you know, no. But I can do my email. That's a big step, right? Because <laughs> we have lots of email. But it's not a fundamental change in this convergence of man and machine. And the question is, how far do we want to go with this? And who decides what means too far? So this is happening pretty much all over the place. And, you know, these devices are already our external brains. We keep everything in here. So the question is this handshake. That's the real question. That has to be a good handshake. And the computer is not evil just because we have a handshake. I mean, not evil or not equal just because we have a handshake. It is a tool. Now think about this for a second. You're somebody that uses a tool like a hammer. You, know, you can kill somebody with a hammer. You can kill somebody using AI. Right? But then again, you know, the hammer is not the purpose of, of the carpenter. It's the house that he's building. So this is very important to keep in mind that we should not confuse the tool with the purpose. And creating this handshake is our mission. The safe handshake. The ethical handshake. And clearly what's happening here, I mean, we see so many examples of this lately, is that as computers are learning this, how to do the routine, the handshake means computers are taking over lots and lots of routine jobs. Check out the supermarket, bookkeeping, financial advice on the lowest level, legal research, DNA analysis, cloud biology, the list goes on. So the end of routine is basically coming. If you have kids, you've got to think about this. The end of routine means we should not let our kids learn anything that's going to be a routine. Anything. Because we ourselves are going to be impacted by this. <laughs> I mean, today, if you want to know about the future, you don't have to come to me. You can go to Google Trends. Say, what's the future of Switzerland? You can see the trends, right? <laughs> I mean, it's so much easier to find out all this stuff. But the good news is the end of routine is not the end of work. 
unless you do a 100% routine. McKinsey has done a great study on this where they said the other day that 60% of jobs can be automated around the world, especially in India, Brazil, and those countries where you have large routine jobs, like call centers. But only 5% can be completely automated. This is a big realization. So the call center, there's roughly 20 million people work in call centers around the world. That's bad news for people in the call center. A machine that can speak, that can hear, they can rebook my flight. Do I still need humans? Yes, but not all the time. Clearly, that's going to be a huge shift in how we look at the world, and that's going to you know, bring up this discussion. <laughs> it's funny you hear that all the time. People are saying machines are getting smart, so we become useless. Well, when we stopped using the plow and the horse to to plow the field, you know, and the tractor came along, did we become useless? Yeah, if, if, if we stick to the plow and the horse, we did. Huh? But we moved on. We can do other things. This is really important for us to think, you know, that's happening in the next 10 years. End of routine. I don't think we'll be useless. I think we're going to find other ways that we can be human, other ways that we can add value. So, in a nutshell, this is our future. Algorithms, technology, and what I call androrhythms in the book. It's a fake word, of course, right? The human things. I mean, I bet if I ask you what is human, you would give me 50 things. You know, compassion, empathy, curiosity, mystery, serendipity, mistakes, lies, cheating. No. Human things. Why would a computer be interested in mysteries? <laughs> That's why we should not let the computer run social media. We have to keep the mystery. That's human. These things are what makes us human, and we have to think about what happens to those things. This is our future of work. This is what we're going to build. This is what you already are doing. That's why you're here. You're not here to gather information. That's just one of the things, is to build relationships. So all these things are things that our kids should learn in school. That's pretty hard, because how do you learn empathy in school? Programming, yes. That's something we have to think about. Which way do we want to go? How deep do we go into those, what I call the algorithms? And the World Economic Forum has already tackled this and said, okay, this is the new skills we need. Quite clearly, some of the old ones are prevailing, but the new ones are pretty amazing. Critical thinking, creativity, emotional intelligence, cognitive flexibility. If you had asked an HR person 15 years ago, do you want people who ask critical questions? Who are emotionally, into, or, you know, emotionally in general is, was bad then, right? HR per, uh, person would have said, no way, that person is going to be a pain in the butt. Right? Today you ask HR people, what do they want? Guess what they want? Real people. Right? Emotional intelligence, problem solving, answering questions. Uh, Picasso already said, computers are really stupid. They only have answers. That's no longer actually true, right? Because computers can ask questions. But it's us that do this. One thing is for certain, you know, when human intelligence, AI and AI, when they collide, business as usual is dead. I mean, we have 10 years for this. Right now, computers are kind of smart, but this box here is pretty good. But in 10 years, it'll be a million times as fast, a million times as fast, right? And one-tenth of the price. Or it won't exist at all. I just command it in the cloud. So when my intelligence collides with this intelligence, then basically I got to think about what I want to do. And the positive part is, of course, with those skills, we have to become more human, not less, because of technology. To put it brutally to you, I know how this works in the technology industry. You work like a robot, you will not have a job. Because a robot will work like a robot for one-tenth of the money. Anything that you can do there, you're safe. Right? Think about the future in the own way that, that you want to make it happen. So this is very important when we think about how we want to go, which direction we want to go in the future, and which way we're going, because this is the rising importance of human-only work. You know, 100 years ago, we didn't have much human-only work. 
because you know we, we were doing all the work ourselves because we didn't have machines. But today, you know, the future is basically we're only going to do the work that humans need to do. Creativity, design, negotiation, discussion, innovation, invention, problem solving, negotiation. Machines don't do that. They can simulate some of it now, but this is what we are going to be doing. So that's where work is going. I think that's, that's very hopeful. At the same time, clearly what routine is, you know, we have to also wor worry about people who are replaced by the routine of machines. That brings me to this topic. Gardner says the number one topic for 2019 is digital ethics, the use of technology in a human way. And this is the truth, right? I mean, how could technology have ethics? I mean, technology, you know, this is in here. It's, it's, it's a binary mechanism. It's an algorithm. It can understand ethics by looking at reading my face and things like that, right? But can it be ethical? It doesn't exist. How can it be anything? We should not look for technology to help us with those questions. Technology will not solve our social or political problems. It will make them worse. If we want to solve those problems, we have to solve them with the use of technology. What has Facebook brought to us? I left Facebook uh, nine months ago after a lot of debate. Initially, good technology. Lately, one scandal after the other right, of unethical behavior. How will Mark f fix, you know, maybe he can buy some, you know, ethics on Amazon or something in a special sale or something. I don't know, but uh, he's trying. Not to say that he doesn't have ethics. He does. But the, the business model of Facebook is to, to ignore all of that. I mean, it's mind-blowing the problems that we're going to be looking at. So let's define ethics real quick just to see what we actually agree on what that is. Right? So ethics is really the idea of saying, okay, we have the power or the right to do something, but we don't do it because it's not the right thing to do. The difference between knowing what you have a right to do and what is the right thing to do. Now, make no mistakes about this, right? It's not easy to know what is the right thing to do. But when Google employees or others say they're going to leave the company because Google sells the software to the Defense Department, that is obviously not a decision that you make with, the, with your wallet. Right? It's an ethical decision. So we've got to think about this every single day because now we're really changing what happens around the world. When we build the Internet of Things, who's going to be accountable? Or is it going to be like Facebook that one day somebody says, you know what, all of the navigational things in the city have been hacked and nobody really knows why or how. Right? So safety, security, accountability, clearly very important. Because now we're moving in the future, we have 10 years for this, with this whole debate about if we can do something or how, that's what we're talking about today, right? will be what, why and who. In 10 years, this company will be trusted, not because it can make things work. That may be already a little bit true, right? But why and who? Right? What do they stand for? And that's the question we all have to ask for. In 10 years, I will buy a, a, a medication for whatever my problem is, not just because it solves a problem, because who does it and how they do it right? to make sense on a larger scale. We have to think about this because it's basically happening today on a, on a, on a slant that's moving much quicker than we have ever thought about Give us some examples here on this carousel, right? digital ethics, Gardner. Of course, many discussions on ethics are, are everywhere now. It's, it's basically in use. Of course, SAP has an ethical AI board now, which is pretty new, I think, just half a year ago or so. Uh, and we have the debates about all these things. Telefonica has what's called the New Deal for the discussions of, of digital technology. And the list is basically endless, right? In the UK, ethics are a boardroom topic now. And Denmark has a, uh, a, a new ethics manifesto that the, the government of Denmark has put out. Every single in the country in the world is talking about how we can keep technology from becoming inhuman. It's very interesting to see. You know, the other day I watched uh, Tim Cook, uh, the Apple CEO at the European Commission, and he said that technology can do amazing things, which we all agree on. Right? But technology does not want to do any amazing things. It doesn't want anything. If we want technology to do amazing things, then we have to make sure 
that it does amazing things and not all the other things that we don't want. So I proposed in my book and many countries around the world the creation of an ethics council, an organization that looks at how all of that would work and come together. Because now we're heading into a new future, and I'll wrap up on that very soon so we can have some questions. I know you probably have lots of questions. Uh, this is the scenario that we're looking at already with climate change. And there's little, very little debate on this left, whether this problem is real or not, <laughs> I think, for most of us. But we know how to deal with this. I think we have ways forward, but it's a very, very tough problem. And now we have a new problem. It's called digital pollution. It's a fact that we use technology for everything, and all of a sudden it's easy to be observed. It's a filter bubble. Right? It's uh, easy to get distracted. You know, some people want to become superhuman and connect their brain to the Internet, and the robots are taken over, and addiction. You know, this, the list goes on and on. But on that, I would say you ain't seen nothing yet. Right? Like the song, I used to be a musician, what can I say, right? I mean, today, if you're looking at the level of, of issues and, you know, on a scale of 1 to 100, we're at 4. And this is already a little bit disturbing. So what we have to do is we have to include the externalities, the side effects, into the business model. Everything that we do, whether we connect people, Internet of Things or drones or AI, we have to bake in the idea of saying how do we keep it so it's safe, secure, human, collective benefit for everyone. And not just on the corporate agenda page, you know, like, you know, we're going to have green energy and those kind of things. This is mission critical. We will not survive an incident, let's say, 20 years down the road where artificial intelligence becomes generally intelligent and connected. We need to rehumanize. I have to push the button and say, you know what, this is important because we're humans. I mean, think about this. After all, technology is not what we seek. It's how we seek. I don't think any of you would say, you know, I love my wife because she is so efficient. You know, her technology is so great. You know? You know? There's other reasons. I mean, for us, you know, things that matter for us have very little to do with data and technology. Right? There's uh, thousands of reasons why we do these things. So we have to rehumanize. We have to put the human purpose back in. And that's why we're discussing why it's good or why it's not good. How do we do that? I know it's difficult, right? Could that be sand in the gearbox of the revenue machine? Yes. If Mark actually changes the business model of Facebook to care more about privacy, right? Facebook as we know it will stop to exist. Right? So that's not going to happen. Without Mark, it, you know, probably in the long run. <laughs> so let me conclude and then we'll take some questions. So the mo most important thing is the future is hell then. Right? It's heaven or hell. Right now, I would say it's 90% heaven. We can safely say we have huge benefits from all of those things, whether it's media or making free phone calls or, or, or outsourcing routines. It's all you know, really powerful stuff. But we don't want the 10% that are an issue to grow to 50. Because, you know, this could very well happen that because technology grows exponentially. So this is where we have to think about, you know, how do we uh, make technology respect us? and respect ourselves in this new food chain that's developing in, in this sort of hell-bent scenario. The second thing is, as I like to keep saying, you know, this is our problem is not that machines will come take over for the next 20 or 30 years. It could be a problem eventually, right? The biggest danger today is that we become like the machines. We become lazy. We don't think anymore. We outsource everything. We can't live without having this connection. Uh, utterly dependent. So have a nice exercise sometime. You know, go for dinner without your mobile phone. Be a human. I would dread the day when I get out of bed and I cannot function without an Internet connection. And that's very well possible. So we have to think about this. You know, we have to stay human but use technology to help us in what we want to achieve. That's quite a balance that we have to strike. It's not going to be entirely easy because it's, you know, the government is involved, we are involved, personal responsibility and so on. And the other thing is we really have to get off this fear hyping. The future isn't bad. The future is actually so much better than we could ever hope, but we have to make it so. 
We have to reduce the fear, but keep the caution. In other words, let's be optimistic and look forward, but let's not be stupid. Stupid would be to say, we're going to go into an arms race on artificial intelligence. And we're going to see who builds the first weapon based on AI. That would be very stupid. Because unlike Hiroshima, we would not survive that. So reducing the fear is very important because, you know, we can't go in the future based on fear. Otherwise, every day you're pulling your hair out, you know, or, you know, starting to drink at 12 noon. So that's very important, I think, for us to keep an optimistic view on where the future is going, to bring that down to the 10% level. And finally, we have two decks of cards. We have the human cards and we have the technology cards. The human cards have been the same for a long time. And un unlike machines, we're not growing exponentially, right? Except for aging, maybe. Uh, these are our cards. Beliefs, values, morals, whatever you want to... Not religion, that's completely different. Right? We're talking about the lowest possible denominator right, that we have on here. And there is the, the technology adding a new card every week. Right? 3D printing, cloud computing, quantum computing, traveling to other planets... Right, so my resolution on this, basically, I think we need to invest as much in humanity as we invest in technology. In other words, we have to invest a lot, right? Because I know you guys are investing a lot in technology. But how do we make this happen? Right? What is the core of what we do? I mean, many companies are coming to me and saying, you know, can you tell us how we can get rid of 50% of our people by using smart technology? That's the agenda. Right? Do you really think a company without people is going to be anything but a commodity? Very bad idea. So this agenda, I think, is going to be our future that leads us to this one key point to think that we're going to come to in the very near future. And that is basically this. You know, we're building a world that's based on data. That's abundantly clear. And we're not going to go back. We're not going to go say we're not going to use technology because it has potential side effects, right? But this is the truth. You know, societies are defined, driven, sorry, by the technology, but defined by humanity. We should not let technology define what we are. That's our job. So I think that's, that's where we have to go towards to a future that can balance those two things together. You know, I think I'm very hopeful that in just a year or two, I'll write my next book, Technology and Humanity, right? the next iteration of this. So that's pretty much all I have to say about this for the time being. I, uh, I will like a conversation now if you're up for it. I think we have a, a moderator who will help me not to uh, continue my monologue. Thanks very much for listening.